Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Nicole Trujillo Pagan, and I'm a sociologist, an associate professor, and your host, here with Reese Jones to talk about his book, White Borders The History of Race and Immigration in the United States from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall. Reese Jones is a Guggenheim Fellow and a Fellow of the American Association of Geographers. He's the author of four books, Nobody's Protected, White Borders, Violent Borders, and Border Walls. He's also the editor-in-chief of the journal Geopolitics and edits the Rutledge Geopolitics book series with Klaus Dodds. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Hey, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So I understand White Borders is not your latest book. How does how does this book compare to your latest one? Yeah, so I, I had another book, Nobody is Protected, that came out uh, last summer um, in 2022. Uh, but I wrote the Nobody is Protected in White Borders at roughly the same time. They were uh, they were the same book for, for a while because I had, um, maybe I can even step back to my book before that, which was Violent Borders. Um, that book came out in 2016. Um, and I that book looks at the history of uh, of violence towards people on the move um, and tries to understand why there were so many people dying at borders in, in the mid 2000s and 10s. Um, but that book makes kind of an, an economic argument and kind of a state system argument for why these restrictions are happening at movement at borders, but it didn't really focus on race. Um, but that book came out in October of 2016. And of course, in as it was coming out and then out, Donald Trump was in the process of his racist campaign for the presidency of the United States, where he was talking about a lot of these issues that I had been looking at in my first book, Border Walls, and my second book, Violent Borders, but turning them into these kind of um, really powerful arguments for his his presidency, but using these concepts in these very racialized ways. And so I decided at that time I needed to go back and really think about this use of immigration as a racist trope, right, as a, as a way to kind of... Um, uh, to, to rile up his base and to get them um, to to vote for him, essentially, right? Um, and so that's when I went back and started to work on what became these two books, White Borders and Nobody is Protected. Um, and so I looked at, you know, when were the first U.S. immigration laws passed? I think a lot of people assume that the United States and all countries have always had rules about who could enter the country, but that turns out to not be true. People also assume that the U.S. must have always had um, some sort of border force that protected its frontiers, um, but that also isn't true, right? So people are often really surprised how recent those things have happened. Um, and so in White Borders, I look at why they happened when they did. And and probably the, the short summary of the book is that essentially when different groups of non-white people start to show up at the borders of the United States and look to enter the country, that's when these new restrictions get put in place, right? Starting with Chinese exclusion and in response to a series of other movements in the, in the decades and centuries since. Um, 
but then also I look in my book, Nobody is Protected, at the Border Patrol and its role as a racist police force, right? It is it is established two days after the 1924 Immigration Act, um, which is based in eugenics and has national origins quotas, which was explicitly designed to protect kind of a white version of the United States. Um, and so the two books kind of speak to each other in that way, right? The uh, White Borders is about the history of immigration laws. Nobody is Protected is about the Border Patrol as a racial police force. You know, I, I want to unpack. I feel like there's three things that you said there that I want to unpack in turn. But I want to just pick a little bit more at when you talk about a racialized police force, which is what you're covering and Nobody is Protected. There's also this really poignant moment of action that I see really becoming much more explicit around the 60s. Right. So at the same time that we could talk about Border Patrol having done things at the end of, say, Operation, um, the Bracero program, right, preceded by Operation Wetback. How is that happening with a civil rights movement? That's something that you talk about in your in your book. These these moments seem to be tangled together. Yeah, definitely. I think in White Borders, there are a couple of these moments where there are these big transitions happening and we see kind of a racialized reaction to it, right? I mean, one is certainly um, the the aftermath of the Civil War um, and Reconstruction. It's right in that period that we see um, the introduction of Chinese exclusion laws, and we should definitely talk about that. But another moment that we see a similar sort of process is in the civil rights movement. So um, in the 1960s, there's, of course, a series of um, important civil rights laws and the the changes to the Immigration Act that happened in 1965 are certainly part of those transitions and that those racist uh, quotas that I mentioned from the 1924 law were finally removed in 1965. Um, but at the same time, that's when the first restrictions on Mexican immigration and immigration from anywhere in the Americas actually has a, a limit put on it. Prior to that, people from Mexico and from everywhere in the Americas were free to enter the United States as long as they crossed at a crossing point. They couldn't work without permission um, unless they had like a work program like the Bracero program, um, but they could enter the U.S. freely for that entire period until, until it actually doesn't go into effect until 1968. Um, but the changes that that, that that brought in after 1965, kind of the end of the racist quotas of who could enter the United States um, and the the kind of emergence of the idea of illegal immigration at the border um, is created by that law. So in the decades after that, we see the emergence of um, the border and of immigration as these key kind of talking points for the white supremacist movement in the United States um, and a series of right-wing actors who kind of sanitize the these white supremacist talking points and bring them into the mainstream. So the last third of White Borders looks at that movement and particularly identifies a man named John, John Tanton um, from Michigan, from where, where you are, uh, where you, you live and work, um, who, who was central to that, um, to that effort. So um, Tanton is someone, he's, uh, he's quite a a character. Um, he's, although I'm aghast at what he did with his life, it's also the type of thing that you can't help but just be, I mean, impressed is not the right word, but just like, you know, it, it's amazing how much he achieved um, for where he was coming from. He was a, an ophthalmologist living in upstate Michigan, um, and he worked full time as an ophthalmologist, but somehow 
at the same time, he founded all of the key anti-immigrant groups in the United States um, that uh, through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, if you look at any major anti-immigrant issue, whether it's Prop 187 in California, um, English only laws, um, the failure of comprehensive immigration reform in the, the early aughts um, in 2013 and 14, every single one of those things is directly tied to John Tanton and the groups that he founded, um, leading straight to Donald Trump. A lot of the key figures in Trump's orbit in his immigration policies, from Stephen Miller to Jeff Sessions, all had longstanding and direct connections to John Tanton's anti-immigrant organizations. Um, so uh, he's been called the maybe the, the most influential American that most people have never heard of. And I think that's a very apt way to, to think about his influence on our politics today. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to think about, uh, it's almost like a reading guide to your book, right? You have these explosive moments, uh, end of slavery, reconstruction, you have uh, civil rights, and you know, all of these changes in the immigration policy, and then you have Trump. And I love that you're talking about this sort of sanitized language that Taunton is using, because, <laughs> of course... Right. President Trump is the exact opposite of that sanitized. So help us understand, how is it that over the course of about 50 years, Tanton develops over 30 organizations and they're involved in all kinds of things like the environment and um, population control? How are these things tying into it's It's almost like um, immigration is riding like a parasite on other issues. Can you help us untangle those a little bit? So one of the things that emerges in White Borders uh, that surprised me was this longstanding connection between uh, environmental movements and white supremacist movements. If you look at the people that were really influential uh, at the turn of the last century when the that 1924 immigration law was being put in place, the, the people who were talking about the threat to the white identity of the United States were all also involved in the environmental movement at, at that period of time. Um, and I can talk more about that period in a little bit. Um, and John Tanton is the same. So he, in the 1960s, is part of the early Earth Day movement. He was a key figure in organizing Earth Day um, in Michigan. Um, but he was particularly uh, influenced by Paul Ehrlich um, and his notion of the population bomb, which is this argument that global population growth is going to outstrip the ability of the 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 world to support that, and that the most important thing to do is to do population restrictions. So in the early 1970s, uh, Tanton is is very much involved in those movements. He's on the national board of the Sierra Club. He also becomes the president of uh, Paul Ehrlich's group called Zero Population Growth. Um, but sometime in the early 1970s, Tanton has this realization that it's not just the global environment that needs to be protected, but very specifically to him, the American environment needs to be protected. Um, and he realizes that even if population control happens in the United States, that there's this global population growth happening. And the only way in his view, to protect the American environment is through immigration restrictions. Um, and so in the early 70s, he's making this argument. Um, he doesn't find traction in the Sierra Club or zero population growth. And so he realizes he's got to take this on himself. Um, and so he decides that he's going to establish these organizations to make this exact argument, that there needs to be immigration restrictions to protect 
the environment of the United States. But he also then starts to build these connections to white supremacists to also argue that it's to protect the culture of the United States, right? The way of life here, the political system that he sees immigration is a threat to. Um, so the first of those groups that he founds is in 1979, which is the Federation of American Immigration Reform. Um, the other really important ones are the Center for Immigration Studies, which he founds in the late 1980s. Um, so FAIR, the first one, Federation of American Immigration Reform, is kind of the lobbying branch. They're, they're designed to be at Congress, to find Congress people to take up their bills, to be the, the voice for immigration restrictions at Congress in the same way that other lobbyists are arguing for all these other issues there. Um, he realized, though, that they needed data to support that. And so he created the Center for Immigration Studies um, to be the data arm, right? So they produce studies specifically with the aim to show that immigration is a threat to the environment, to culture, to jobs, whatever data they need to, to support their arguments. Um, and then the last really important group they founded is Numbers USA, which was founded in the mid-1990s, which was the grassroots organizing group. So they realized that they needed to um, also reach out to what we would call today the base of the Republican Party um, and to nurture their fears about immigration. And so Numbers USA was designed to do that work, right? To have that outreach, to have the membership, and then to be able to activate that membership when there was some sort of issue at Congress that they were worried about, right? To flood Congress with phone calls, to flood Congress with faxes, right, in the in the 1990s to make their argument that, that Congress needed to restrict immigration more. So how did he do all of this? Well, one, he's a very industrious guy, but two, he was really good at finding money. Um, so in the 1980s, he was nurturing wealthy individuals um, who were supporting his causes. Warren Buffett gave several million dollars to his organization in the 1990s, in the 1980s, Buffett was on the, the board of FAIR, um, the National Board of FAIR for at least a decade in the 1980s. Um, but the key person he found was Cordelia Scaife May. Um, Cordelia Scaife May was a Mellon heiress um, who in the uh, 1990s was thought to be the richest woman in the United States. Um, but she also shared Tanton's um, kind of extreme environmental views, um, ex uh, views in support of abortion rights. And he kind of nurtured her into sharing his anti-immigrant views. And um, so throughout the 1990s, she was a key donor. When she passed away in 2004, she left almost all of her money to uh to a foundation, which is called the Cold Colcom Foundation. It's based in Pittsburgh. Um, and their remit is to support these anti-immigrant groups and environmental conservation groups. Um, and today they have over $400 million in assets. Um, and so you, you can see this kind of immediate, and I, I show this in the book with some data and charts, that in the year after she passed away and essentially Tanton and his allies got control of this Colcom Foundation, the funding for each of his anti-immigrant groups um, doubles or triples, right? And so um, we see them very much more effective in the years after that. So um, you can see that kind of increase in funding, increase in influence at Congress, and then leading to someone like Donald Trump. But it's interesting that you talk about Cordelia May because you also write that 
her hero is Margaret Sanger, someone who we, and I think you you know that the second organization, even before the um, anti-immigration organizations, is the Northern Michigan Planned Parenthood, right? So Tanton is clearly also thinking about something that I think a lot of audience are concerned about, reproductive rights. So where does this, you know, how does this factor into the whiteness of white borders? Yeah, I mean, Sanger, of course, has a complicated history, right? I mean, I think Planned Parenthood has disavowed her now at this point. Um, And it gets back to that period that I was discussing before, the turn of the 20th century, where if you look at American politics during that period of time, it's it's a white politics, of course, um, but it's a politics that was uh, where ideas like eugenics were just commonplace. It was, it was something that a lot of people just took for granted. So eugenics, of course, is the idea that, um, that we can use uh, strategies of restricting birth in order to shape kind of the genetic pool of um, the population. And specifically during this period of time, there was the argument that white people and most specifically Nordic white people, so Northern Europeans had the best genes, right? And that that there's this need to protect the genes of those people. Um, and uh, Sanger was a, a participant in this, right? So her version of Planned Parenthood was also a version of protecting this kind of Nordic genes from being outcompeted, as they might say during that period, by genes from other places. Um, this is a widespread view during this period of time. So it's she is not out of the, the mainstream context in this moment. So someone like Teddy Roosevelt, for example, president of the United States, um, he talked about um, race suicide, right? So mm-hmm. um, for him, race suicide was the, the notion that um, because Northern Nordic people um, didn't have as many babies as immigrants from other parts of the world, that if the United States continued to let in lots of immigrants from those places, that they would eventually replace the the white population and that that would account to race suicide. Um, the Another influential book during this period of time was The Passing of the Great Race by Madison Grant. Um, this book came out in 1916. Um, he's another Another example of that kind of intersection between the environmental movement and the um, the white supremacist movement of this period, um, but so because Madison Grant, a lot of his work was involved in um, museums in New York, natural history museums, um, but also he was a big influential figure in creating protected areas for um, endangered species like the American bison in the West. Um, But the insight that he has in his book, The Passing of the Great Race, is that the Nordic white population is like an endangered species. And so for him, what the United States needed to do was to create a protected area for the Nordic white population. And the way to do that was through immigration restrictions, right? To prevent the entry of non-white people, to create a protected area, um, to avoid the race suicide, to avoid the replacement that was the big fear during that period. Um, So Margaret Sanger was certainly part of this widespread belief in the white community in this period of time. I know I've been talking for a little stretch here, but one last thing that I do connect in the book is is the notion of the great replacement. That's kind of the arc of the entire book, because 
when we talk about the great replacement today, we often treat it as if it's a new idea, right? That someone like Tucker Carlson has come up with this great replacement fear, right? The idea that immigrants are going to replace white Americans, right? And change the culture and way of life in the United States. But in the book, I argue that's been the same argument from the start in terms of immigration restrictions. If you looked at the arguments at the the time of uh, Chinese exclusion in the 1870s and 1880s, they're making the exact same arguments. Um, At the turn of the 20th century, it's phrases like um, race suicide, right? Or the passing of the great race um, that are bound up with this eugenics idea that the Nordic race was under threat. Um, the idea of great replacement or, you know, white genocide, those terms are essentially describing the same thing, right? So it's a, it's a very similar sort of fear of immigration and this notion of white supremacy that is the arc that runs through immigration policy from the 1870s through the present. Let me go a little bit earlier than 1870s. You also talk about how the KKK organized around immigration. Yeah, absolutely. But I would say that that's the second KKK, right? So the the Ku Klux Klan emerged after the Civil War um, in the and was really was an anti-black organization during that period of time, and eventually gets put down, right, and 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 um, kind of stopped, right, by the mid-1870s. Um, it reemerges, of course, in the 19-teens. I don't have the exact year here in front of me, um, but kind of the second coming of the Ku Klux Klan follows the, um, uh, the, the film, uh, the name of it is escaping Birth me. Birth of Maybe the Nation. Just, yeah, Birth of the Nation, right, um, that they kind of glorified glorified that first version of the KKK. And this is the second version um, is focused on the immigration part too, though, right? So if you look at kind of the founding documents and the arguments that these early KKK leaders in the second coming at the late 19-teens, early 1920s, um, they're arguing about, of course, Black people being a threat to the United States, but also um, Catholic immigrants and and non-white immigrants from elsewhere in the world. So um, kind of the anti-Black racism of the first version of the KKK gets expanded to the anti-immigrant language that that follows it. Right. But it's interesting how those keep Right, recurring when we talk about that great replacement. I, you know, you say this is about protecting the American environment, but I was really struck by what you, what your book talked about with, um, with um, uh, Hitler, right? Having looked to America as a case study for his own thoughts. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in Mein Kampf. Um, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf while he was in jail in uh, 1924. Um, and in that book, he talks about the the danger from his... So, of course, I'm going to say over and over again, the words of the people that we're talking about, right? And I'm going to frame it the way that they frame it. That's not my view, right? So I'm stating their view. I want to make sure that I say that at some point. So Hitler, Hitler talks about the danger of immigrants to the German nation, right? So he's thinking about Jewish 
people, but also other people moving into the country. Um, and he is critical of the German state in the 1920s for not doing anything about what he sees as these threats to um, to the German nation. Um, but in the book, in Mein Kampf, he cites an example and he specifically mentions the 1924 Immigration Act in the United States as a model for what Germany should be doing, because that Immigration Act had essentially banned all Asian immigration to the United States um, and had put severe restrictions on immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, right, and, and Jewish immigration as well, um, in order to kind of protect this version of a, a white country. Um, and it, it wasn't like a hidden goal, right? The the headline of the New York Times in 1924 is America of the melting pot comes to an end, right? Um, and the goal, it says in the headline, is to protect the racial type as it exists here today, right? So there was no ambiguity about what the purpose of that immigration law was. It was to protect the white version of the country. And so Hitler saw that as the ideal, right? As the thing that should be the, the goal for, for Germany. And of course, he takes that to its extreme, right? So not only creating rules, barring entry, but also eliminating people within the country, right? Which is, if you think of this eugenics frame of how to see the world, that is the the end point of it. And we've seen what happens with that. Um, and I think that just to kind of make that connection back to today again, um, when we see the way that immigrants are talked about today on the right, um, you know, well, what is that endpoint from their version, right? If they really believe that non-white people are replacing the white culture in the United States, like, well, what's, what is the solution to that, right? Well, it's violence at borders, but it's also violence in the country, right? And we've already seen what that looks like, right? So it's, it, it's really concerning to see that same sort of fascist rhetoric repeating itself today, um, using the exact same tropes and language that, that we've encountered before. But your book opens with this case of an Irish immigrant, right? And you point out like, okay, so we're talking about whiteness and white borders, but even whiteness itself is arguing about who's in and who's out, right? Can you talk to us a little bit more about those distinctions? Yeah, of course, right? Race is an imagined thing, right? It is a category that we use to organize and create hierarchies in society, right? There is no essence to race, right? So to say there's no essence to race, though, is not to say that racism doesn't exist, right? Racism absolutely exists, right? And has a very pernicious and real negative influence on our world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the underlying category of race has to be real, right? So, um, and we can see that quite clearly in the United States in that period from the 1850s, when the people from Ireland are kind of the first group on the outside that eventually gets brought to the inside of, of who counts as white. Um, but that same process continues to repeat itself through the 1880s, through even the, the 1920s. And in the book, I talk a little bit about some fairly well-known Supreme Court cases um, that finally settled this distinction. I should back up for just a second, though, um, because this all plays off of the citizenship rules in the United States, right? So although the United States didn't have any immigration laws until the 1870s, um, it did have rules about who could become a citizenship, right? So to be naturalized as a citizen, um, the first Naturalization Act of 1791, I believe it is, um, says that it, it is limited to a free white person. 
right? That's the direct words that were in the, the rule. And so, but it doesn't define exactly what counts as white, right? And so the courts have to grapple with this as people from different places start to arrive in the country. Um, because of course, the vast majority of the first people arriving in the United States to colonize are from Northern Europe in England, right? And have a fairly similar um, background. So when people start coming from other places, Ireland, Southern Europe, and um, then Asia or the Middle East, and there are these questions of who counts, right? And so in the book, I talk about this series of court cases where there'll be, there'll be one case that'll say someone from Armenia is white, right? And they are granted citizenship. And then a couple years later, a different court will rule that someone from Armenia is not white, right? And so they don't count as a citizen, right? So um, people from India seem to have a lot of this back and forth. There's like six or seven cases where they are, three or four where they're not, right? And so um, there's this kind of back and forth about deciding exactly who counts as white. The Supreme Court finally weighs in on this um, in 1922 and 1923 um, with Ozawa and um, uh, uh, Singh, the two cases um, that considered first whether someone from Japan um, could count as white, right? The argument in that case is that the person that people from Japan have quite white skin, right? Lighter skin, right? Than maybe a lot of Europeans have. Um, so if it's skin color, They've got it. Um, but then also that this individual had lived in the United States for decades and was a fluent English speaker, was a capitalist, right, and was very strongly um, fit these ideals of what it meant to be American. Um, but the Supreme Court says no, right? It says that that really what they mean by white is someone with Caucasian ancestry, right? So they deny the Ozawa claim. Um, but the man from from India, Bhagat Ten Singh, um, uh, brings his case in 1923 and says, okay, well, if it's Caucasian, you know, people from South Asia have the same Caucasian roots as Europeans, right? We have to speak the same Indo-Aryan languages. Um, we, I count, right? So if that's the category, right? And so the Supreme Court says, no, 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 no. We're not talking about academic theories of origins of languages. We're talking about common understandings of who counts as white, right? And that is a white person from Europe. Right. And so um, that by 1923, that definition of white had really shrunk down. Right. To be to be Europe. Right. So so in some ways, I guess it, it expands to include people from Italy and people from Ireland, maybe who had been on the fringes of being white and um, but then really excludes people outside of that after 1923. Um, it's not until 1952 that that term free white person is actually removed from citizenship law in the United States, um, which is is not that long ago, if you if you really think about it. So for, you know, over 150 years, that phrase was in the definition of who could become a citizen in the United States. But it's interesting because I feel like this is present throughout the book, but you don't make an explicit, um, I guess, uh, point of it, and since so many of the people listening right now are thinking about, you know, are, are probably going to be immigration researchers and are familiar with CIS data, help us understand when does science matter and when does it, when does it not matter? And we need to think about the common definition. What, what purpose? Just, you know, it's almost like immigration is riding on all these other issues, but then so is science. When does science count? Um, that's Quite a question. I'm not sure that I have a direct answer to that. So um, it just if, seems you... like it's being strategically. If you in your book, it just seems to keep coming up whenever it's useful, right? So there's always it's always there, and then 
easily discarded. And it's not really clear why this becomes, you know, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. You see this also, um, like, can we can we talk a little bit more about this this um, triumvirate of Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions, and uh, Stephen Miller, and how they use the kind of data that um, CIS would be producing and how they help Trump? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, that was one of John Tanton's um, insights, right, was that there were all of these academic researchers who were producing all of this research to argue that refugees benefit the United States, that immigrants contribute to the economy. Um, But in his view, they didn't. Right. And so um, he set out to create the Center for Immigration Studies to produce data that could be used to conflict with those arguments, right? And so that's what what they do. Um, and then it and then it's it's the 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 insight he has is that it it can't be an overtly racist organization, right? That it needs to have um, a uh, a benign sounding name, right? Center for Immigration Studies. It it seems like it could just be any unit talking about immigration. So then when someone like Jeff Sessions cites their data, then it sounds official, right? He's not citing the Ku Klux Klan, right? He's not citing the Aryan Nation. He's citing the Center for Immigration Studies. Um, And then the directors of these groups, right? You know, they wear suits and ties. They look like lobbyists um, that you would see at at any other organization. So, um, So there is that kind of performance of being mainstream and he saw the power of of doing that um but nevertheless as the um the uh southern poverty law center has shown um Mm -hmm. this whole time that he's setting up these kind of forward-facing organizations tanton in the background is writing letters to white supremacists he's talking about he's reading their early writings he's um commenting on them providing them feedback he's saying to the the directors of the center for immigration studies that we are on the same side as these white supremacist um groups and so um you know he's he makes the point that we need to see what they're writing and know what they're doing but then also be separate enough so that we can seem mainstream um and the interesting thing is that despite this really clear um, links between these white supremacist groups and the Center for Immigration Studies, FAIR, um, those groups have continued to be mainstream. Um, it's hard to, to get them to have that kind of legitimacy taken away. Um, so despite the very clear evidence of those connections, it's it's interesting to me why that is. And I... And I right. Not sure that I have a clear answer for it, um, but you know, for example, the media still interviews the director of the Center for Immigration Studies or for or Fair um, on places like National Public Radio or the, right. the New York Times, right? Um, in ways that they would never do to other groups listed on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of um, of extreme of hate groups in the United States, right? They would never interview the the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan and ask their opinion about race relations in the United States. But nevertheless, they still do call the director of fair, who's been showed to be the leader of a hate group, um, to have connections to other white supremacist groups, um, and still interview them and treat them as a legitimate actor. Um, and so that's the success of Tanton, right, is to sanitize these things and to create that kind of foundation that someone like 
Steve Bannon or Steve Miller could then use to um, to enact these policies behind the scenes. Um, Stephen Miller, just for an example, so he gave the keynote speech at the Center for Immigration Studies annual conference in 2015, just before he joins the, the Trump campaign. Um, uh, a reporter leaked his emails um, for a period um, from like a year from that around that time for his first year working for the Trump campaign. And during that year period, he emailed a Tanton network group at least once a week for that entire year. Right. So um, emailing them ideas for stories um, getting data from them to um, to use for his campaign events. Right. So he was directly connected to these hate groups in the process of advising Trump's campaign. And the way that you wrote that section where Krikorian almost seems to introduce Miller right, in, uh, onto a stage, onto a platform that gives him the influence, I think rivals in a really helpful way the kind of influence that money has when you talk about Cordelia May, right? There's an influence that seems to be persisting um, through these connections that perhaps are less easy to follow, right? Follow the money, but we have to also follow the people. Let's talk a little bit more about this, um, the way that Bannon Sessions and Miller helped Trump win. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They, the, if you look at the Trump campaign, looking back on it now, you can see there's kind of a push and pull between whether it is a, like, Russia-driven organization um, or whether it is an anti-immigrant Group, right. And so um, but it's with the, the beginning of the fall of his campaign when he fires his campaign manager at the time, um, Paul Manafort. Right. And then eventually hires in um, Bannon, who has this kind of strong anti-immigrant point of view brings on Miller as an advisor. Also, Kellyanne Conway becomes his campaign manager. Kellyanne Conway was the pollster for um, FAIR, Numbers USA, and Center for Immigration Studies for over a decade. So um, has a long connection to these anti-immigrant groups. So by the fall of his campaign, they decided that it was going to be that anti-immigrant thing, that, right? That their, um, their argument was that immigrants specifically are the threat to the United States, and they felt like apparently correctly, that that would be enough to turn enough votes in the upper Midwest to win a few of these states that were close um, and vault him into the presidency. So, um, so yeah, he became that anti-immigrant candidate when he brings on board um, these, these figures. Um, there, there was a campaign meeting, I believe it's in August of that year, just after Conway and um, Bannon are on board, where they bring in people for for advising and, and who do they bring in? They bring in the head of Numbers USA and the head of Center for Immigration Studies, right? So um, those are the only people they consult about how to run that campaign. So to put that the other way around, the only people they consulted were hate groups for how to operate um, the campaign for the presidency of the United States. Um, it's pretty shocking. Um, and in the book, I, I demonstrate that after Trump is elected, who does he hire to operate in um, the Department of Justice, um, in the Department of Homeland Security? Um, he hires people from these hate groups. So I, I believe I documented, I think it's 16 different people who had previously worked at a hate group who get hired into the Trump administration. Um, and from my conversations with the Southern Poverty Law Center, that's as far as they know, the first time someone who's affiliated with a hate group has been hired by any administration ever. Um, and they hired 16 of these people um, to operate in different facets of their immigration policy. 
But this is the this is I think the helpfulness of of the historical perspective that you offer that maybe we see them right in these moments these sort of explosive moments like Trump but in fact they they meld into the mainstream for the most part throughout the 20th century. And I just got to I, I got to ask what to me anyway. I have two questions. One that seems just an obvious question that someone's got to answer for me. When you're saying that back in the 1920s, we're thinking, um, you know, Tanton is and then his predecessors are thinking, you know, this Nordic white race is very vulnerable, right, to the hordes of non-white people outside of the United States. Well, I mean, if they're scientists, I mean, if it's so vulnerable, right, <laughs> I guess, you know, we learn right from evolution that survival of the fittest. What, what does that say about the fitness of the Nordic white race? I I just it's you don't ask that question. You just, you know, give us the data. But why doesn't anybody ask? Well, I mean, yeah, is that vulnerable? <laughs> I, <laughs> you know? I, I, I do kind of point that out when I'm talking about the um, the passing of the Great Race book and um, in Madison Grant, because yeah, there are these passages where you know it's like the the white men are so superior in every single way, um, but then like the next sentence, he's like, but they can't resist those non-white women, and that's diluting our bloodline. So the only way to protect them is to keep those women away, right? So it's just like, oh uh, yeah, it's it. it I mean, you're looking for rationality and logic in this white supremacist position, but it doesn't exist, right? It, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be rational and logical. Instead, it needs to be emotive and um, and to tap into this kind of powerful groupist feelings that people have, um, and and tap into that that idea of racial superiority, right? If you can convince people that they're superior in some sort of way and that this other group is a threat, they're, they they they're going to act in a way to protect that, right? And um, we see that strategy is effective at mobilizing white male voters, particularly, but white voters generally, um, over and over again, right? To to demonize some other group, to present them as a threat, and then in that process to also build up the the superiority of the the white male, right? In in relation to that. Um, you know, there's been there's there's an argument called the the wages of whiteness, which argues in the same period that we keep returning to the you know 1880s to 1920s that that the way that poor workers were essentially brought into this capitalist argument right was to give the white male this this mark of superiority right so that even though they were poor even though they were being exploited by this capitalist system um, they could nevertheless feel their superiority to the immigrant and to the 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 free black people um, in the aftermath of slavery, right? And so it kind of brings them on board to continue to vote for and support this unequal system by giving them this kind of modicum of privilege in that through their race. Yeah, I don't I, I, I don't know how to put it. I didn't I didn't track it, but I know that it happened at least three times in the first third of your book where you keep seeing this contradiction. Like there's this internal contradiction, right? Where we're concerned about the morality of Chinese women, but really it's the predation of, right? The 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 white male customers, but we're gonna you know, slap the restrictions on the Chinese women. It's it, it, the the. I have to say, it just it's very interesting the way the book reads. Like, okay, this is what they're claiming, but then this is what they're doing, and they just seem so opposed. 
Yeah. So I really yeah, encourage the, the listeners to look for that because it's it's kind yeah. of like, um, what do they call that? Uh, whiplash. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some people have talked about, you know, Schrodinger's immigrant, right? You know, Schrodinger has this box where the, the cat inside the box can be both alive and dead at the same time, right? With, with the representations of immigrants, right? They can somehow do all of these things at the same time, right? Immigrants are um, taking jobs from American workers because they work so hard, right? And they're these like amazing workers. Um, but at the same time, they're lazy and drug addicted and just here to take advantage of our welfare system and get the benefits, right? So um, somehow they do both. And that contradiction between these representations um, is a feature of both the 1880s descriptions of Chinese immigrants and descriptions of immigrants today um, that somehow doesn't ever seem to quite compute in people's minds that it doesn't make sense, right? They can't be doing both of those things at the same time. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. And I, and I, I think that's helpful that you bring up Schrodinger's a philosopher, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. Because... Yeah, like a physicist, I think, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, because, you know, your book reads to me like a history, but you're also a political geographer. So what do you think, I mean, what do you think a political geographer brings to this question that's different? Yeah, so geographers are interested in the relationship people have with the environment, right? So all of the field of geography has some sort of look at that relationship between people and environment. Um, but political geographers specifically are interested in how humans organize space politically, right? So what are the systems that we put in place to control land, resources, and people? Um, so political geographers today focus a lot on borders and immigration, right? Because the state system, of course, is the preeminent mode for organizing um, political power. And in terms of organizing control over resources, right? It's through border restrictions of who can access those resources and not, but most specifically through the movement of people is where, where my work is focused. So I've been interested in how this completely imagined notion of a border, right? Borders don't exist, right? They, these are human ideas, um, almost always drawn on a map first, centuries earlier, um, and then over time come to be practiced on the ground in a particular place, but nevertheless have become these extremely powerful ideas to shape how we understand inside and outside spaces, who belongs and who doesn't, how we can exist as humans on the surface of the earth. And so, um, so political geographers look at it that way, right? Look at borders as something artificial, as something that is not a natural part of the landscape. It's not something that's always existed. Instead, it's a system that some humans have imposed in order to protect resources and privileges that they've accrued in a particular place and to exclude other people from that. Um, and so um, if the the kind of the the arc of my four books now um, is to look at different aspects of that, right? I'm particularly interested in um, state reactions to people on the move, right? So states have claimed this exclusive control over land, resources, and people inside of a territory, um, but that doesn't mean other people have to respect that, right? And so. And they haven't, right? We see that quite clearly. And so what I've looked at is what the state does when it's faced with that questioning of its authority, right? And so my first book looked at border walls, right? So in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when I was doing my dissertation research, I noticed that all these countries were building border walls. And, you know, I had kind of 
come of age in the 1990s when the Berlin Wall had come down, right? And supposedly walls were a thing of the past. We were moving towards this borderless world of globalization. Um, but as I saw when I was working in my dissertation, um, India, where I was doing research, was building this border wall on its border with Bangladesh. Um, the U.S. passed the Secure Fence Act in 2006. Um, Israel was building its wall in Palestine. And so I was like, why are all these countries building these walls? And so um, that's what my first book looked at, right? This reaction of building a wall to prevent movement at borders. Um, my second book looks at um, the violence that goes along with that, right? So why are so many people dying at borders around the world? So what is the why is it okay to use this violence against people at these external borders of countries and kind of what's the historical connections of that and in that book, I argue that there's a long history of using movement restrictions um, to control labor and to protect privileges, right? And so in that book, I make a connection to systems like slavery or poor laws or vagrancy laws, which were using violence to restrict someone's movement in order to extract wealth from them. Um, I think you can see the same thing happening at borders today. It's just kind of a different scale, right? So people in, in these imagined new countries that have been created through the state system are then contained by those borders, become pools of low-wage labor for um, corporations to access, while the privileges accrue in the wealthier countries around the world, and then movement is restricted to kind of contain and protect that system. Um, Third book, the one that we're talking about today, is, of course, uh, about the use of immigration laws to protect those privileges. So when people start to move, what laws and rules can be put in place to protect those privileges within states? And then the last book is the Border Patrol, right? So what is the how do these organizations that are tasked with restricting movement at borders operate? Um, and I argue that the Border Patrol operates in a very violent but also very racialized way. But, you know, this is very helpful because you say something, you talk about the visible wall and the invisible wall. And I think this is this this sort of um, summary of your oeuvre, right, helps us think about what is this? Is this a contradiction? Is this a binary? Is this a duality? How do we think about the visible wall and the invisible wall? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think it all goes back to the what I said at the beginning, which is that borders are imagined, right? Borders mm -hmm. are not something that we have always had, right? Because a border, it has to exist on a map first, right? It has to be a line on a map that then gets implanted into the ground, right? The notion that these large entities control a territory and that territory has this clear boundary around it, that's only possible to imagine when you have a map to imagine it with, right? Before the advent of a large-scale map of modern cartography, it was not possible to imagine the world in those sort of bounded ways. Um, there were certainly restrictions on movement on the ground, right? There were lots of walls in the ancient era, um, but there wasn't this kind of global system of agreeing that we have these imaginary lines and that those lines exist on the earth, right? Um, so, but they are imaginary. So then you have to bring them into being, right? You have to enact that for it to have any sort of meaning, right? For many decades, the U.S.-Mexico border existed on a map 
but it didn't exist on the ground, right? People moved through that space quite freely. Um, the United States and Mexico didn't actually even mark that border, even though it was created in the 1840s and early 1850s. Um, they didn't actually mark it until the 1890s. And they just put down border stones every once in a while to show where it was. But people could still very freely move through that space. Um, so it's really not until 1924 when there is this law about who can enter the United States um, at kind of a, a global level that it was necessary to have a border force to actually enforce those rules, right? If you don't have rules about who can enter, you don't need a force to enforce those, those rules because they don't exist. Um, so there's always that kind of interaction between this imagined idea of the state and of territory and then the actual world out there where we have to enact that, right, and have to bring that into being. Um, and I think that's why border walls are so popular in the, the contemporary moment, um, because they do exactly that, right? They take this imagined idea of inside and outside space, um, this line drawn on a map on a piece of paper, and literally bring it into being, right? It is there in the form of concrete or in the form of metal um, that kind of shows, one, that authority of the state, but also, two, shows who belongs on each side of it, right? It, it becomes official that there is this distinction of these territorial categories, but then also the identity categories that are supposed to correspond to that. Um, and I mean, I mentioned that we've seen an increase in border walls. Um, this is something that uh, in some of my work with Elizabeth Ballet, who's a professor um, of geography at the University of Quebec at Montreal, um, she's done a really good job of documenting the number of border walls around the world. Um, so when I first started looking at these things in the, like 2007, 8, 9, um, there wasn't really even a good count of how many border walls there were, but she, she put it together at that time. And she found that in the 20th century, there weren't that many, that as at, maybe at the end of World War II, there were about five border walls anywhere in the world. As late as the year 2000, there were like 15 border walls. Um, so, but then in the early 2000s, lots of them going up. So when my book on border walls came out in 2012, there were 35 border walls, right? So in that book, I talk about the number of walls doubling around the world. Um, but in the decades since then, they've that's doubled again. There are over 70 border walls around the world today. Um, and I think you can see that as part of this kind of effort to move against the, the idea of globalization and of a kind of global humanity and to protect this notion of the nation and of the state, right? And to kind of show that that still matters in the world, right? That there still is this significance to these lines on maps and that that's not going to be replaced by some sort of global humanity. Um, I would advocate the move to the global, but, um, but I think that we see the world moving in the opposite direction, right? We see the growth in fascism, right? And the notion of kind of a closed identity and the exclusion of the other that doesn't belong. We see the rise in violence at borders. We see the dramatic expansion in the number of walls around the world. You know, your book starts um, by talking about different things happening in different parts of the country. And then you talk about the uh, Pacific Trans-Pacific Railroad and how this sort of helped, I guess, make the conversation uh, more national. But what I really appreciated that the beginning of your book does is it reminds us of all the noise that's happening at the level of the state. Right. And I think that that really has recurred this competition between the state or the local attempts at efforts 
right? A controlling immigration policy who comes in, who comes out. And then we don't even necessarily need a physical national border. We can talk about the bordering right of people like Arpaio. Show me your papers, please. You have a chapter on Tancredo, Tancredo, trying to out Tancredo, Tancredo. So can you just help us think about that overall, how we make sense of the local and the federal struggle over immigration? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, in the in the um, 19th century, that was one of the big debates that was happening because the U.S. Constitution actually bans any limits on immigration through 1808. Right. That's a clause, of course, that was meant to allow slavery to continue. Right. And the importation of slaves to continue until that period of time. But that also meant there were, could be no other restrictions on who could immigrate to the country. Um, so since the Constitution doesn't expand on whether the federal government should have the right to restrict entry, it was assumed that after 1808, that individual states would be the ones that could make decisions on who could enter their territory. And a number of states did put in place restrictions restrictions in, in, in the, the years that followed. Um, New York and Massachusetts had limits on the poor, on the infirm entering. Um, southern states put limits on the movement of free blacks at their ports. Um, so seamen who would arrive were, were limited in their movement. Um, the Supreme Court considered these twice um, and both times ruled that these state level restrictions on movement were unconstitutional. It was in 1849, there were the passengers cases, which looked at New York and uh, Massachusetts. And then in 1875, there were two cases, Henderson versus New York and Chewy Long versus um, uh, California, um, which both were about um, whether the individual states could put in place those restrictions. Um, and so the Supreme Court ruled in, in both of those years that they could not, right? And so instead it was realized that the um, immigration was a federal issue. And so it's it's then no chance, no, no, uh, not by chance that it's in 1875, that same year that that second set of immigration decisions were made, that the first federal immigration law is passed, which is the Page Act, um, which is meant to ban Chinese immigration, but in practice really only bans Chinese women from entering the United States. So that's followed by the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, so yeah, there's this kind of push and pull between whether states have these rights or whether they, the, the federal government does. Um, that's come back up. Um, you mentioned Joe Arpaio in the Show Me Your Papers law. Um, the Tanzan Network wrote that law, right? Where did that law come from? They wrote that law. Um, their, their group called the Immigration Reform Law Institute um, was the, the group that, that wrote it. Um, and it's uh, the, the man who was the Kansas Secretary of State, um, whose name I just lost. Um, it'll come back to me. But he worked with the Tanzan Network for over... Kobach? Yeah, Chris Kobach. Yeah. So he was the legal counsel for FAIR, for Center for Immigration Studies right. and Immigration Reform Law Institute. Um, so lawyer for hate groups for many years. Um, but they wrote the um, Show Me Your Papers law for Arizona and also the one that passed in, in Alabama. Um, so, yeah, right back to the Tanton Network. But like I said, you could bring up any anti-immigrant thing that happened from... 1985 through 2023, and the Tanton Network is behind it. Um, the, the, they have had their hands in all of these sort of things, um, and they still are doing it today, right? They have that over $400 million right now um, where they're still enacting these same sort of practices. Well, I really appreciate that you 
wrote this book. I think it does a really unique job of helping us zoom in and zoom out and zoom in and zoom out. So I really, the writing was fabulous as well, but I got to ask you, so what are we going to stay tuned for next? Yeah, so I'm just starting to work on another book. I'm going to the U.S.-Canada border um, and telling the story of uh, refugees crossing from the United States into Canada um, and also drug smuggling there. Um, but uh, it's in the early stages, so I'll just leave you with that. But it's uh, it's going to be a really good one. I'm pretty excited about it. Well, we're right here on the Detroit is on the border with Windsor, so don't forget about us. Come, <laughs> come up and visit us sometime. <laughs> Sounds good. I'd love to. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me.